0: So shout out today to Clarice Gomez and she left a five-star review on iTunes, which made me blush and said, Boomer, host of the Decoding Superhuman podcast, highlights all aspects of health, performance optimization, and more in this can't miss podcast. Again, I'm blushing. The host and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone that listens. Clarice, shout out to you. I really appreciate you. and everyone who really just leaves reviews, but also listens to the show. It's it's amazing to see the feedback. So thank you. If you're like me, you may have had this type of organ meat growing up, overcooked beef liver and fried onions. Who remembers that? It tastes awful and grandma just wanted you to eat all of it. And as a result, I didn't consume organ meat for a very, very long time. And if you're like me and you're kind of skeptical about organ meat. Well, my guest today is here to change that. My guest is Ashley Van Houten, and she's a health and nutrition journalist, speaker, podcast host, health coach, and self-proclaimed health and fitness nerd. So you know that her and I got along. She has written for Paleo Magazine for more than eight years and a number of other health publications. She recently wrote this book, which I've used both with myself and with clients for recipes for organ meat, and it's called It Takes Guts. And it's absolutely hilarious and has thoughtful anecdotes on just cultural backgrounds behind adding organ meat to your diet. And you guys know that I lived in Asia for a number of years and have a lot of exposure to organ meat as a result of that. Ashley is the host of the Muscle Maven Radio podcast and has worked with other top health-related podcasts like the Shrug Collective, Muscle Intelligence, and Paleo Magazine Radio. Her podcast has been downloaded more than one and a half million times. Damn. And she's interviewed some of the biggest names in health and wellness, including Dave Asprey, Laird Hamilton, Mark Sisson, and so many more. She's combined her formal education and professional experience in marketing communications with her passion for healthy eating, exercise, learning, and bodybuilding, which is something we get into today, and has done a fantastic job at all of the above. And so what did we get into aside from just talking about organ meats, which is something that I do think people can eat a little bit more of. Uh, We talk about Ashley's bodybuilding career and specifically what she thinks people do when they take it to the extreme that causes them all this pain. We talk about uh, the fitness industry in general and how people can be very dogmatic. We also get into carnivore diets and who is the carnivore diet for? Who is it not for? And how the carnivore diet may actually help with something like a prolonged fast or help mimic a prolonged fast and its benefits. Yeah, you heard that one. And we finally get into organ meat recipes and how you can make organ meat taste good again. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash guts, and enjoy my conversation with Ashley Van Houten. So today we're going to get very, very deep into organ meets with the muscle maven herself. But before we do that, I love a good workout that takes very little time. And what are my go-tos for that? Well, you guys probably know them already. I love the X3 bar. I love B-Strong. But I also love this beautiful, sexy bike that is sitting in my office right now. And you guys probably see that in the back of most of my podcast videos. And it's called the Carol. And the carol gives me a kick-ass workout in two 20-second sprints, and I'm finished in eight minutes and 40 seconds. I don't sweat. I certainly breathe a lot, and I'm able to get right back to work. And on days when I have back-to-back phone calls or podcasts, well, that's just amazing. And so I enjoy the Carol a lot. And if you want to get yours, go to CarolFitAI, that's Carol C A R O L ai.com and use the code DECODING150 and you're going to get a deep, deep discount on a very nice machine. Let's get on with my conversation with Ashley Van Houten. Ashley, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Boomer. I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh, we'll see if you're saying that by the end of this conversation. But But we're we're going to- I
1: love that you warned me, though. Uh, I love that you warned me. I have to
0: give full disclosure to people now because I I am a very curious person and I ask a lot of questions, so- Um,
1: I can relate to that
0: let's, I would love to hear just because you've got a a vast array of experience, both in in fitness, but also coaching people. And I would love to hear just sort of what brought you into the fitness industry in the first place.
1: Okay. Um, I, I don't really have like a, a good sort of elevator pitch light bulb moment. So I apologize for that. I don't have like a kind of quick little, like, I mean, (laughs) I I, I would love to
0: just like, how, how did it flow?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really was more like a million little things that led me here. And when you kind of look back, it was sort of like every piece had to, to be there, but there wasn't one kind of defining moment. I just sort of, as long as I can remember, I've always loved um, strength mm-hmm. and muscles. Like even when I was a kid, I, I, you know, I had an older brother, so I was watching things like American Gladiator yeah. and World's Strongest Man. Yeah, who and is like your that.
0: American he, Gladiator of choice? Was it Nitro, Turbo? <laughs>
1: Oh, I mean, literally all of them. <laughs> I was in love with that, every single one of them. I just, I wanted to be one. Like that's still the job that, like, the calling that I missed. I feel like maybe I'm a little too short. I actually ended up becoming friends with one, and I was like, "Am I too short for this?" And they're like, "Maybe a little bit." Just anyway, a little. Bit. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But I, so I always just was kind of fascinated with um, human ability and seeing what human beings were capable of, and I kind of liked. Um, sort of exploring the outer limits of what people could do and what they could look like. And I liked the showing off aspect of it. And I loved just sort of like the learning aspect of it. I I was always fascinated. And I grew up kind of just being attracted to that aspect of life strength and exploring human ability. And when I was going through school, I never really considered myself an athlete personally. Um, Cause I didn't, you know, I went into like my mom put me in volleyball or soccer or whatever, but I, I didn't really play team sports so much. Mm-hmm. And I think that we tend to really put an emphasis on team sports as athletics. And so while I was doing gymnastics from a young age and swimming and things like that, I never really considered myself an athlete. Those were just things that I did. And it wasn't until I I guess graduated from university and I found at that point CrossFit which was sort of in its earlier earlier stages like 2008ish. Oh,
0: this is around um, the time when every workout made you throw up kind of thing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that time. Yep, yeah, yeah, when it was new um and but I found it and I I found it incredibly interesting and exciting yeah. and empowering at the time as a woman who maybe, you know, not trying to like date myself too much or even say that I was sort of at the forefront of women in strength because I wasn't. I mean, there were women bodybuilders and athletes for decades and decades before I came along. But when I was working out in the gym when I was 16, like in the, I don't know, early-ish 2000s, I guess... Um, it wasn't the same environment that it was now there, there weren't, you go into a regular gym today and it's more than half women and they're barbell squatting and they're doing these impressive things. And maybe back then it didn't quite look like that. So going into an environment like CrossFit where it wasn't like, this one freak of nature over here can can deadlift twice her body weight or do a pull-up. It was like, this is what we do here. This is what we learn. Mm-hmm. And it was really empowering for me and really cool for me to see. Um, and the the sort of, look, there's pros and cons to CrossFit. We don't need to go down that yeah. road. But for me, it was sort of the, the concept of, Having always having something new to learn and never really being at the end, like knowing that you could just constantly be getting better and learning new skills was really, really cool for me. And so that- Just
0: on the CrossFit thing, uh, before we go, because I want to hear the rest of the story, but one of the things that I applaud CrossFit for is sort of the perception of women's bodies in particular. Do you think it had a contribution in terms of sort of changing that perception?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think- (laughs) That's a whole other rabbit Uh hole. I I may have
0: just opened up a can of worms.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think that what women's bodies look like will always be scrutinized more than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that while I, of course, applaud the idea of accepting more muscular women's bodies as as beautiful and functional yeah. and, and good. I still think that at the end of the day, it's still this just overly, uh, over concern with what we look like, yeah. right? Like it's like strong as the new skinny and strong as the new sexy. And it's like, like, why does it always have to be tied into aesthetics. our value with what we look like? Just, just work out. And this, that's, that is one of the reasons why I like CrossFit because what it did for a lot of people was it put the focus on skill, first. And then it was like this, this bonus that you just started looking good. Yeah. You know, it was like, you go to CrossFit and you start squatting, you start deadlifting, you start doing pull-ups and you're going to, you're going to be excited over your numbers and your PRs and what you can accomplish. And then all of a sudden, six months later, you love the way you look in your clothes. And it's like, that's a bonus, you yeah. know? Um, but I still think, you know, again, like the, that, the, the, over like, uh, concern with how we look and why that matters, I think is like a whole other topic that probably isn't going away. Um, but I, I, you know, of course I loved, I still love watching the CrossFit games just to see the specimens yeah. like men and women. It's incredible mm-hmm. to, to watch. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that was, that was, um, a really important kind of period for me with crossfit and that brought me into other sports that I got into and really enjoyed things like powerlifting and then that brought me into bodybuilding and then a bunch of other things and I was kind of each each sport that I got into I learned a lot and I took what I liked and what I learned from it into the next phase of my life and I'm kind of just accruing all of this interest and knowledge and fun and passion and and with that of course came the nutrition side because Everybody knows when you hit, I don't know, somewhere in your twenties, you have to start caring about what you (laughs) eat all of a sudden that matters. And so along with that kind of came, um, my discovering of the paleo diet, um, or approach to eating, which always just really made a lot of common sense to me. I think that people tend to, um, really quickly either jump on a bandwagon or dismiss something based on what they consider to be a trend or what they consider to be just sort of like fancy marketing. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you don't like the name paleo, maybe you don't like what you think of the concept of, you know, eating like a cave person or whatever, but boiled down to its most basic, it's eating real food, unprocessed food, food that our bodies are have evolved to um, use. Mm -hmm. And so that always made a lot of, a lot of common sense to me. And so that was kind of a really a, a base starting point for me nutritionally And that brought me into um, going from a more kind of corporate office career in marketing communications to moving into publishing and podcasting and, and content creation around wellness and nutrition and fitness, and really just sort of combining the things that I was doing and, and learning and loving in my personal life and like turning it into work. So that I'm skipping ahead because that took years to do, mm-hmm. um, and I'm still doing it. Um, but I'm really fortunate that I'm able to do that because not a lot of people do get to, you know, turn the things that they love to do into their job. And I've somehow knock on wood for now, I've been able to find that balance.
0: Uh, so at one point you did compete. Is that right? As sort of, you did a fitness competition, I believe. Is that it?
1: Yeah. I, I did a little bit of competing mm-hmm. in, um, in powerlifting as well. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in, uh, uh, when I got into bodybuilding, which was really like purely experimental, okay. it was kind of one of those things where people kept telling me to do it. Cause I loved flexing anyway and I you know was always in the gym lifting weights and they're like why don't you just do one of these and just see like maybe you could you know and I decided to do it and kind of learn some things about my body and and diet and and discipline and I did pretty well so I kind of competed for a few years as long as I was sort of enjoying it and learning from it and I think I I did learn a lot of interesting things about the sport and about myself um and yeah, I mean, I still consider myself a bodybuilder. I haven't competed in a few years. I, I may still again in the future, but I think when you uh, you find that love of just being in the gym and lifting weights and and building muscles, that's just something that's kind of always a part of me, whether I'm competing or not. Yeah,
0: and t- in terms of competition, because you know I've spoken to many people who've gone down the bodybuilding route. You know, Chris Gethin's been on the show and a few other uh, people, Wade Lightheart, who have gone through and, you know, competed for a number of years, and there always seems to be this connection with uh, if I did it again, I would do X, or if I, you know, or I wouldn't even do it again. Uh, In your case, when you were competing, there are at least what I know of the bodybuilding world, you hear all these stories of people taking things to the extreme. Um, Is there common practices that you saw that were just sort of things that were taken to the extreme and didn't need to be. And if you were to do it again, you know, what, what would you change about your approach? Because you have all this knowledge now about nutrition and everything.
1: I love that question. Um, I, I think that this sport in particular can, um, attract, obsessive kind of approaches to eating and exercise because it is one of those, especially from the outside, sort of like a more is better kind of the bigger, the better, the harder, the better, whatever kind of attitude. And because also it is at its most basic, a beauty contest, it's a muscle beauty contest. And because it's so subjective and because it's so again, on the surface, it's very surface level, um, in terms of the competition specifically, it can, um, attract people who have really dysfunctional, um, attitudes towards their body and towards eating and things like that. So that of course can then lend itself to, um, people assuming that it's across the board, a dysfunctional sport, it's unhealthy, it's bad. It makes people have body dysmorphia. It makes people have, um, you know, just really unhealthy attitudes towards themselves. And there is an element of truth to that. There's also a chicken and the egg thing where it's like people who kind of feel that way might be attracted to this sport. So, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of issues. I hesitate to say that bodybuilding is terrible and no one should do it because I do feel like there is sort of this, um, this, rhetoric out there that people love it until they don't love it anymore. People love it until it doesn't work for them anymore. And then they kind of want to crap all over it. And I think that you just have to be like anything else that you enter into. It is extreme. What you're doing is extreme. And so there are risks associated with it and you need to be mindful and thoughtful and understand why you're doing what you're doing and weigh the pros and cons and weigh the risks. And I think one of the things I speak to a lot, because I, um competed for a little while I did quite well I probably could have I mean relatively easy could have done this professionally and Mm -hmm. I decided not to because there was an element of things that I'd have to do to be competitive at the next stage that I didn't want to do for my health
0: oh Um, you, you just have a cliffhanger right there that we have to naturally delve into uh, if you're I just willing- didn't
1: want to take. I didn't want to take steroids. I didn't okay. want to take drugs. I didn't want to take anything that was going to mess with my hormones. Okay. I was always a natural athlete, and um, I, and again, we could go down that rabbit hole too, because that's a whole huge part of the sport, incredibly pervasive, incredibly damaging. I think, especially to women and men, but again, it's about knowing the risks. But I think that one of the things I would say for people who are competing at an amateur level, which you can still do quite seriously and get a lot, have a lot of success and work very hard. Like amateur doesn't necessarily mean you don't know what you're doing. It just means you're not, you don't have your pro card or whatever. Yeah. Um, but people tend to lose sight again of what they're doing a thing for. And so they think they get into this bubble and think that it's the most important thing in their life and they've got to win at all costs and they have to take all these risks and do all of these things. And so they end up really damaging themselves health wise and physically and, and, um, hormonally and all of these things to win a like local amateur competition where you're not going to win any money. This isn't going to do anything for your career. You paid for this. You, you set out to do this, to learn something about yourself, hopefully to, to achieve a goal, to, um, do something that will make you feel proud of yourself. And instead you are now in this anxious, unhealthy, uncomfortable unpleasant sort of scenario that you, you put yourself into, right? So I tell a lot of people, especially for women who are competing at the amateur level, one of the bigger issues that we tend to do is we tend to get too lean. Mm -hmm. Um, so we think we've got to be lean to get on stage. You have to have a certain level of leanness. You have to look a certain way to get on stage and be competitive. So if I have to get this lean, if I get this much more lean, even better, right? It's that more is better kind of scenario. Yeah. Whereas in my case, when I competed, I competed in figure, which is sort of like, I like to explain figure as sort of like if a CrossFitter dieted for a couple months, right? <laughs> like very athletic, not, not overly large or striated or, you know, whatever, but it's an athletic kind of um, look is what they're going for. And I would get literally as lean as I had to, to, to get on stage and absolutely no leaner. So I was usually in the lineup, probably kind of the least lean person there, but I didn't look stringy. I didn't look tired. I wasn't, um, you know, losing my cycle. Even I wasn't, none of these things that are very common with getting too lean too fast. Um, I wasn't having these issues because I did it in a very gradual way. And I recognized that in some cases, the minimum effective dose is, is the approach you want to take, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you still care about your health and you still care about enjoying the process, that's what you have to do. And people just don't listen because they, if you're coming from a place of, um, not good enough, or I have to prove myself, or I have to be the best, you're always going to think more is better when that oftentimes just is not the case. Um, and I would also recommend again, especially for women to, and this is just my opinion. I know a lot of people actually disagree with me on this. I would recommend that you seek out a coach who, um, looks maybe the way you want to look who, you know, has trained and has the same kind of values and approach to health that you do. And I'm not saying that a woman can never have a male coach, but to me, our, our physiology is so unique. Our hormones are so unique Our the way we, we react to diet and stress is different than men. And so for me to go get like some muscle bound 260 pound pro heavyweight bodybuilder who I know is taking a ton of drugs that I'm never going to take and who does not have the same setup as I do. It just doesn't make sense. So like I did the research and I found a coach who was a natural professional bodybuilder who never once spoke to me or encouraged me to do anything I didn't want to do. And in fact, told me, if you're interested in getting into that road, like I don't, we're not, you know, going to do this. And we worked together to do it to prep and, and um, get ready in the most, in the most reasonable and, and, uh, progressive way possible Mm -hmm. with that said, I mean, it's still extreme. It's still an extreme thing that you're doing and it's not for everybody. I think the fact that I got into it later, like I did my first bodybuilding competition when I was like 29 or something. Um, so I was already pretty like far along on my health journey. I kind of understood my body. Um, I really was pretty secure in how I looked. And so it really wasn't about, trying to get external validation. I know it sounds crazy. Anyone who like parades around in a bikini on stage, you're like, you must be doing this for the attention. And I mean, it was great. It was great to win and to look good in a bikini and have a six pack, but I wasn't so tied with the, the outcome because I know how subjective it was. And I think the fact that I just kind of enjoyed it and really focused on the process instead of the end goal yeah. is what made me as successful as I was.
0: Uh, so uh, I want to just unpack something you said there because I think there's a lot of people listening to the show that come from an executive background, a high-performing background. And with that crowd, you have a tendency to push things to the extreme, to go beyond, as you alluded to earlier. But it seemed like during your career, you were able to recognize those tendencies in other people and kind of separate yourself from that. How, I mean, I'm, kind of just guess trying to wonder like how you, you develop that if you develop that, or is that something you naturally had and how would you teach that to other people?
1: That is so tough. I have no idea. I mean, it's funny because I used to the quality that you're kind of talking about. I used to use it as my excuse for why I never became like a higher level athlete, or I never became a pro in the bodybuilding world. Like I always used to say, like, I just don't have it. I just don't have what it takes to be so myopically focused on one thing and so driven in one area that i can reach that elite level like i would much rather be like pretty good at a bunch of stuff and like try a bunch of things and be you know relatively competent than be super super good at one thing mm-hmm. like and and i kind of position myself that way like i'm the generalist like come to me i'll probably have an answer for you to almost anything but i'm not the you know, authority in any one thing, yeah. right? Which is kind of hard to market when you're trying to develop your own kind of yeah, brand I, I, and, I, and work, right? You're just like, eh, I just know some stuff. You want to come talk to me about <laughs> it? Like, the, you know, it doesn't work as I, well. I do the same thing. Um, it's okay.
0: like- <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like a more, it's a longer route to get there. But I think, I think it's, honestly, I think it's more sustainable yeah. and I think it's probably more relatable to people too. Um, but I think one of the things that I can say is taking, uh, removing your- Sense of self worth um, with the work or the the goal, like making those separate. So it's not so much that whatever project you have or whatever goal you have is so tied to your sense of self and self worth that if you don't do the most, you're a failure and you're average or you're mediocre. Or you're not that good, right? Like i i can I can know in within myself that if I do a bodybuilding competition and I don't win, I still am worthy of love. I still did something really good. I you know, I worked very hard. I can be proud of that. Um and so again, maybe some people would say that that's not necessarily a winner's mindset, but I think it's definitely a mindset that that creates a lot more peace, Mm -hmm. um, which is important. And and the ability to be willing to take risks because a lot of people who are so type A and so ambitious aren't going to do anything at all unless they're assured that they're going to win or they'll kill themselves to get there. Instead of, I try to have the approach of like, I just want to try everything and I'm okay with sucking at it. I'm okay with being a beginner because we're all beginners. And if you don't like something or you failed at something, you still learned Um, and that's kind of the approach that I've always taken. So I guess it's, it's trying to approach a goal with a little bit more pragmatism and looking at it more like, this is an experiment. This is a journey rather than this is who I am now. And I must win at all costs, Mm -hmm. right? Um, easier said than done, but you know,
0: before we transition over into nutrition, I would love to just hear your opinion, especially because you come from the bodybuilding world of you know, people that are using things like peptides and SARMs now as sort of, they're coming a little bit into the longevity world too. And just sort of, how do you look at that uh, as sort of the amateurs out there or the people that are trying to live to 120 and now using these things that were once relegated to the bodybuilding world? You know, how do you look at individuals using those?
1: I think it's interesting. I mean, I've done, I've uh, talked to some people on my own podcast about this emerging sort of peptide world. And by emerging, I mean more so for the mainstream rather than, you know, there's always been these subgroups yeah. who have been playing with stuff like that. To me, I I don't think it's necessarily good or bad across the board. I think that what another human tendency that we uh, we often do is is gravitate towards these sexy new experimental biohacks, Mm -hmm. rather than focusing on the key big things you could be doing all day, every day to improve your longevity and your health. And then approaching these as sort of like end stage tweaks when you've got everything else sorted out. I feel like, again, there are very few of us who are so sorted out in our life that the only next step to tweak and improve and take us to that next step is some peptides or some experimental whatever, right? We Most of us probably should be taking a step back and focusing on our sleep first. Yep or optimizing our nutrition or our gut health or our stress management or all of these things. And I speak for myself too. You know, I, I like to play around with different supplements or try different diets and try different kinds of things like that. But I I also recognize that a lot of that is just really for fun um, and for self-experimentation and that there are still so many other more baseline, less sexy things that we need to focus on first. So I think that these areas are super interesting. I think if you have the money and the resources and the, the passion to pursue it cool. Um, but you know, most of us would be much better served getting a good night's sleep first before we deal with peptides. Uh,
0: What's specifically for women, what is the most common thing missing when it comes to women wanting to put on muscle?
1: The most common thing missing Mm. is eating enough protein. Okay. Um, there's a couple common issues I think that I've found working with clients and in the various groups that I've done that we uh, tend to um, be in the gym too much and don't recover enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also at the same time sort of paradoxically, and this is generally speaking, so I don't want any women who are listening to this to be like, you're not speaking to me because i know this is you know this is generalizing yeah. um but we tend to not want to lift heavy enough weights so we're working our asses off in the gym every day but maybe it's Maybe too heavily focused on cardio or conditioning metabolic conditioning that is actually just breaking our muscles down and and eating our fat and our muscles rather than building it up because um, we still have this sort of like less like we have to eat less, we have to work harder, we have to you know be smaller and tighter and all of this stuff and the the reality is to build muscle, you have to eat enough to grow muscle onto your body from nothing and you have to work hard enough to build that muscle. And then you have to recover well enough that those muscles can rebuild and grow stronger. And, 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 you know, that process can happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that we just tend to kind of beat ourselves down instead, um, prioritize going to that gym class rather than, than resting. And then because we're scared of getting big and we're scared of getting bulky, we eat a salad with six grams of protein in it. And you can't, you can't build muscle from that. Men can't do that either. Like I was talking the other day with somebody that I, um, you know, was saying if that the language is still so different, I think when you're focusing on women clients versus male clients, because if any dude who's in the gym, who's trying to build muscle and get stronger, had a coach that told them that they should be doing one hour long metcons every day, every day, and then eating, um, you know, uh, one gram of protein per kilogram of lean body weight, like dudes should be eating like 60 grams of protein a day. Like it would be crazy. Like no, everyone would be like, what are you doing? And then for women who we even have a harder time growing muscle because we have less and we have less testosterone, we're being told that we somehow have to spontaneously grow muscle while eating 1200 calories a day. I mean, that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So we have to get a little more comfortable with fueling our body, prioritizing protein, animal protein sources, because that's how you're going to grow muscle the most effectively and efficiently. Um, and being willing to go in there and really work your ass off lifting weights, Mm -hmm. heavy weights. That's
0: what you got to do. I can see now why like somebody, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon wrote the forward to your book. Um, because, (laughs) uh, I can see why you guys get along. Uh, Yes. (laughs) okay. So I want to, uh, let's go into the the animal protein side of things because we're, we're, I want to talk about the book. Uh, but it, when we look at the idea of carnivore, and, and this is one of those very trendy diets these days, it's sort of right up there with peptides as sort of mm-hmm. trendy topics to talk about. <sighs> who would you say carnivore is right for? Um, and I'm very curious from, from a woman's perspective as well, um, but just sort of, who is carnivore right for? Who is it not right for? How do you look at that? So Ashley has a history with the bodybuilding community, and she still considers herself a bodybuilder. And one of the reasons why I got into today's technology is because I was looking for a tool to well, increase hypertrophy, but also allow me to do it with very little time and while I'm traveling. And so Our sponsor today is the Be Strong, and the Be Strong device is something that you guys know that I'm obsessed with, and blood flow restriction training specifically is something that I find so fascinating. I take this on my carry-on bag, it fits in my backpack, and I use it almost every single day. My workouts are three sets by 30 reps of just a handful of exercises, and I'm done in under 20 minutes. Today is a particularly busy day for me. I'm recording a lot of podcasts, speaking to a lot of people, and I don't have that much time, but I can still get my workout in with the Be Strong. And so where do you get yours? Go to bestrong.training and use the code boomer. You're going to get 10% off. And I hope you enjoy this. Let's get back to the show.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And again, I think that my answer is probably going to be a little bit more nuanced um, than a lot of the people that you might find on the internet. Yeah. Um and again i 'm not a doctor i you know i'm a health coach. I talk to a lot of smart people on my podcast i've had a lot of experience with this, but like at the end of the day, and this is something I, I preach more than anything is that no matter what you hear, no matter what glowing endorsement you get about anything, you need to do your own research. Yeah. You need to be mindful and and um, thoughtful about any kind of new plan or approach that you take. Um, because just because it works for a hundred people that, you know, doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So, you know, take it, take it all with a grain of salt and and do your own work. Um, I think that carnivore, the, the concept of carnivore being eating animal protein, animal products only exclusively. I think that that is a necessary dietary approach for very few people. Mm -hmm. Actually, I tend to think that it is, um, a great tool as a, Reset for people um, as a resource for if you are trying to become more fat adapted, more metabolically flexible, if you're looking to reduce carbs or caloric intake because you're trying to lose fat, but you want to still maintain and grow muscle mass, if you want to still support your body's function while um, trying to lose fat, I think that it's a great um, tool to use um and i think it's also great for folks who again have maybe grown up being very afraid of eating animal protein for whatever reason maybe because they consider it to be heavy or unhealthy or they think it's going to make them fat or get bulky or or you know whatever i think that it's a great kind of approach to learn more about and dabble with so that you can understand that that's generally not the case for most people there are certain people who have um, chronic diseases relating to inflammation and gut health and overt sensitivities to plant proteins and and other foods that thrive really well on an animal uh, protein um, exclusive diet. But those people are pretty rare. I mean, they're not, that's not the average population. I think the average population, most of us, Are omnivores that's the way our physiology is created we do well with a combination of plant and animal foods and it's very bio individual so my perfect plate might be a big hunk of steak with like some vegetables as a garnish, and your perfect plate might be a big salad with some protein on top of it it's the same thing. We're just talking about macros and ratios at this point. Um, So I personally use carnivore again as a, like a reset. So if I go on vacation and I'm eating garbage for a week and I feel kind of gross, what I want to do, instead of doing like a five day fast where I'm miserable and headachy (laughs) and I am not eating and who wants to not eat. I'll do like a, a protein only, um, approach. So I will just eat animal products for a few days. So I'm going to get sort of the blood sugar sorted out. I'm going to get the like carb craving cycle out of my system, but I'm still going to be nourished. I'm still going to be getting all of the amino acids and vitamins and minerals that I need to be healthy. It's still supporting my body's function. It's still allowing me to go work out and, and have energy. Um, but it, it really helps, um, this, this, reset the satiety signals because there's nothing that, that, um, hits that signal that tells you you've eaten enough more than protein. Like people talk a lot about, you know, keto and high fat diets being very satisfying. And I think for a lot of people, that is the case for me. That was not the case. When I experimented with keto, I was like, it's way too easy for me to overeat fat way too easy. Mm-hmm. Like I could eat this all day long. My body's not telling me to stop, but when you're eating only animal protein, you're eating steak and ground beef and fish and things like that. Like you are not going to overeat that by the hundreds of calories. You're not going to overeat that till you feel sick. Your body will very clearly say you've had enough to eat. Um, and I think that that's a great lesson for a lot of people who have not really paid attention to those satiety signals. I think, um, in their life. So, um, you know, long-winded way of saying that I think it's, it is a, a great tool. And if you're going to be experimenting with intermittent fasting or fasting or different, um, exclu- exclusive, kind of like, um, cutting things out of your diet sort of approaches, this is one of the better ones to do because it is still supporting your body's processes and, and nourishing you while kind of showing you what you really don't need, yeah. you know, what you need and what you don't need.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then like, anecdotally, I've seen it work really, really well for people with, and I think you touched on this, certain types of autoimmune conditions, um, in particular, anything related to the gut. Uh, But again, everybody's individual, right? So some of these people even that have Crohn's, for instance, do better with other types. And I I think Mm -hmm. that's a, a point that you're bringing home very, very well, which is like, hey, let's not be dogmatic about this. There is Mm-hmm. a place for this. So thank you for sharing. And I, instead of intermittent fasting or doing, sorry, instead of doing my five-day fast next time, I think I'm going to go to the carnivore approach because that sounds like a lot more like fun. I like it. Uh, right? Yeah.
1: It's, <laughs> eating is better than not yeah. eating at the end of the day. So let's figure out how we can hack the system. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh, the importance of meats, meat-based protein versus plant-based protein based protein. Is this purely from a muscle protein synthesis perspective? I don't know why I have trouble saying that word these days, but, (laughs) but, um, or is there some other angle that you look at it from?
1: Well, I mean, this one's sort of a loaded issue too, because there's so much more at the end of the day, there's a lot of there's a lot of
0: sustainability people that are gonna probably be listening in this
1: one. Sure. And I mean there's a lot of emotions that go into this one. And like I said earlier about the bodybuilding thing, if we looked at nutrition more pragmatically and less emotionally, we could probably get make a lot more headway. But at the end of the day, it's not always about what is actually best for you. It's what you think might be the nicest thing to do or what you think might be the most ethical or what you think might be the least harmful. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I take great pains with the information that I put out in the book that I put out that this isn't a meat eater versus vegan thing. I'm not trying to convince vegans to eat liver. Like that's not my job. And I, you know, whatever, but I think again, from a scientific standpoint, it's quite obvious and quite well documented at this point that animal protein is a much more efficient and bioavailable way to get the necessary amino acids, vitamins, and minerals that our body needs to to thrive in a smaller amount. Like I said, in a more bioavailable way, um, you know, you, you see all these things on social media where it's like kale and steak both have iron, but it's like, you have to eat 10 cups of kale. It's like, again, we're, we're talking about realistic, sustainable ways to get your nutrition. And that's why even further from animal protein, and I go into the organ meat yeah. side of things, because if you are someone who, who wants to maybe eat less, but better meat, right? Maybe you want to eat, less animal protein, because you think that that's a better thing to do for the planet. There's no better way to do that than to eat organ meats, which are nutritionally pound for pound, the most nutrient dense foods that a human being can eat. So then you can eat less of it and get more nutrition, um, out of what you're eating. Um, so I still, again, I think that, it, and people much smarter than me, nutritionists much smarter than me will tell you that it is possible to, um, thrive and build muscle on a vegan diet. Lots of people do it. Um, Those people might be outliers um, and they may also have to work a lot harder. And Um, take a lot more
0: supplements probably too.
1: probably take a lot more supplements. um, And, and, you know, you do tend to see, I hate to say it, but you do tend to see a lot more people that are like recovering vegans who have come back to the dark side than the opposite way. Right. I mean, because again, you know, I don't, I would never put somebody down um, for wanting to cause less harm to the planet. I just think that a lot of times we are misinformed as to how to actually do that. Um, And I think that, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just at the end of the day, there might be a lot of like loud voices saying that that the world is going vegan. But if you really kind of pull human beings in North America, I mean, Europe, maybe too, most of us still eat animal protein. Close. Most of us still do. Yeah. So if we are eating some level of animal protein, instead of pretending that we are not part of the life cycle, instead of pretending that we aren't part of uh, this world where everything lives and dies and eats and is eaten, let's instead turn towards the 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 idea and the challenge and figure out how we can do this in the most sustainable, most humane, um, you know, most ethical and most healthy way possible. And I think that one of the ways to do that is to embrace a fully nose to tail diet and embrace making the best food choices locally, ethically, sustainably that we can every day. I mean, that's, that really kind of makes sense to me. Okay.
0: So now let's go in a little bit to your book, because you mentioned a term there called nose to tail. And I always like to define Mm. terms a little bit beforehand. So if you don't mind just defining what is nose to tail, you (laughs) mentioned a little bit earlier about why organ meats are important, but a lot of people listening to this are thinking of their grandmother's liver with fried onions, right? And they're saying, dear God, Boomer, why are you talking about organ meats? And so, you know, let's talk... Talk first, what is nose to tail? Um, and how like why why should we care so much about organ meats? Because other than just not wasting the animal, what's the mm-hmm. what's the real reason there?
1: Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. I mean, I have a big a big section in this book um, that is really talking about the history and the culture and the background and defining terms of what I mean when I talk about nose to tail and organ meats, because I do think that's really important. And I think with a topic that is still not quite mainstream, that is still unfamiliar to a lot of people. It is really important to have this educational component. I didn't want to just write a book that says you should all be eating kidney. Here's a recipe, right? Like we need to have our hands held a little bit more with something like this because it is intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, nose to tail just means eating every part of the animal that is edible. So when an animal is being harvested and broken down, um, like a, a cow, for example, It's, I think it's some, somewhere less of 50% is, um, actual like off bone cuts. So like the steaks and the ground beef and the, Mm -hmm. the meat that you're used to buying at the grocery store, the rest is hide and bones, which are used and then organ meats. So parts of the animal that we generally widely consider to not be the edible parts or not, not for human consumption, maybe they're getting, um, you know, made into like uh, pet food, or maybe they're being actually oftentimes exported to places like Mexico, where they still do eat organ meats and, you know, they appreciate Mm -hmm. that kind of food. Um, but that, that meat organ meats, all of them really are the more nutrient dense parts of the animal. So what we're doing when we, when we break down a cow and eat the steak and throw out the liver, we are eating essentially what throughout history has been the leftovers. So when people hunted and when people, um, before kind of mass factory producing of animals, when, when farmers and people who had their own kind of cows and chickens, and, you know, before it was as, as uh, large scale as it was today, people would hunt or kill an animal and they would immediately go for the heart and the liver yeah. before they had Google, before they had places where they could look up the micronutrient breakdown of a cut of meat. They just knew instinctively what the most nutritious part of the animal was and that's what they ate. And if there were leftovers, they ate the delicious kind of steaks and the other kind of yummy pieces, or maybe they gave them to their hunting dogs because they recognize that like pound for pound, this is the most important part of it. This is the most nutritious part. And we've completely, um, Lost sight of that. And we've lost sight of it for a few reasons that have to do with, again, factory farming and what's easiest Mm -hmm. to prepare and transport and store and all of those things. And these things have fallen out of favor. But um, it's only very recently that eating organ meats is seen as something that is weird or extreme and it still isn't in many parts of the world, in many cultures, many parts of the world. You know, I put this book out and they're like, yeah, that's great. I do this every day. I eat this stuff yeah. every day. Um, because throughout history and throughout the world, when we didn't have a choice to waste half of an animal, we were of course eating the entire thing. It's really only in certain parts of the world right now that we are privileged enough. And I use air quotes on that one to, to, only use the select few parts of an animal that we want mm-hmm. you know that 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 wasn't an option before so I'm trying to go back to the place where we were more mindful, less wasteful, but then also not approach it. Like this is a chore. Like you have to eat the liver. If you want to be an ethical mediator and you have to eat the liver, cause it's good for you. Just choke it down. I don't want people to just choke it down. I want people to enjoy it. And I want people to approach it with like a sense of adventure. Like let's try some new things and see if we can make this delicious and see if I can get my friend to enjoy it. And I'm going to feel so much better and I'm going to learn about myself and I'm going to be a better cook. And, um, So that's really kind of how I want to approach it. It's like, this is important, but it can also be really fun. Mm -hmm.
0: And and to your point, like I lived in Singapore for six years and, you know, there – and particularly in local cuisine, there was always like pig organ soup, and you would always find organ meats slip their way in. And sort of as a, as a Midwest American kid, you, you know, at first that was shocking, but eventually you get used to it. Uh, yeah. When it comes to the organ meats, there's probably, I'm guessing, uh, some sort of range of nutrient density in terms of where people should should focus. Maybe it's worth just highlighting. You know, is it, is it the liver that's the most nutrient-dense? Do you go right to the heart? Uh, where do you suggest people start if they're looking for really nutrient-dense foods?
1: Yeah, uh, if if at the end of the day, you're just looking for best bang for your buck, most nutrients it's liver. It is liver. Um, and I know, you know, you mentioned, you're not the first person to mention people's sort of like trauma around their childhood liver and onions. Mm-hmm. Cause I get it. That's a lot of people have come to me with that. But again, it's like, I can make the argument that, you know, we all grew up pushing broccoli and Brussels sprouts around on our plate too. Right. Like our parents were like, eat this food. It's good for you. Not everything you eat has to be the most delicious thing in the world. Like this is worth it. Yeah. And you kind of taught yourself like, yeah. Okay. Like I even say in the book, I'm like, we, we we turn our noses up at liver because it's different and it tastes different but like everyone accepts that broccoli is good for you and you kind of got to choke it down that's an acquired taste yeah. broccoli's gross yeah. in my opinion in my professional opinion i have to force myself to find ways to make that delicious and that's not nearly as nutrient dense as liver is so anyway i would say absolutely liver is the king it has um every sort of amino acid vitamin mineral it's got b12 it's got every antioxidant CoQ10 and selenium and it's iron and it's protein. And it's just, again, the amounts are so high that you can eat maybe two to three ounces of liver. Like we're talking a couple bites a couple times a week and you're getting what you need from Mm -hmm. it. So you really don't have to eat. I'm not telling you to replace your 10 ounce steaks every Thursday and Friday with 10 ounce liver, you know, steaks. You don't have to do that. You can have a little bit here and there. Um, there, but I mean, really a lot of organs, a lot of them are more nutrient dense than the muscle meat. So if you can't get around liver and I have lots of recipes and lots of different ways for you to kind of get your head around it. But if you can't, you can try other things. You don't have to love every part. You don't have to eat every part. It's really more for me about sort of opening your mind to it and trying things that you'd be surprised when you get past your arbitrary Kind of fear over something that's different. They're really actually quite um, pleasing yeah. and easy to make, and and you know, so things like heart, for example, I recommend heart to a lot of people because it is easier to um, get used to than liver. You don't have the texture issue that a lot of people have with liver because heart is an organ, but it's also a muscle meat. Mm-hmm. So it has that beefy muscle kind of texture, again, like a steak that you'd be more used to. Um, and it's super high in CoQ10, which is great, um, antioxidant, tons of iron, tons of B vitamins, tons of protein, everything that you need. Um, and it, it's delicious and it's super, um, uh, f- like you can do a lot with it. It's very flexible. Like you can roast it, you can stuff it and roast it in the oven. You can chop it up and marinate it and put it on the barbecue. You can mix it into your ground beef and make burgers with it. Like you can do all kinds of things with it. So hearts, another great option. Um, kidney is another really nutrient dense one. I personally like full transparency, not a huge fan of kidney. I still made a couple of recipes and some people like it better than liver. So again, it's all up to your individual taste, but, um, you know, there's, there's tons and people aren't even thinking about like some of the smaller things like tongue. Tongue is absolutely another yeah. delicious muscle meat that people have a hard time getting their head around preparing it because it looks like a tongue when you buy it. <laughs> and there's some work that needs to be done. Um, but it's delicious. If you've ever had a tongue taco at a Mexican restaurant, it's fatty and rich and it's like a pulled pork or a brisket. It's delicious. Um, and, you know, getting your head around like some of the preparation, I think is another part of sort of accepting that if you are a meat eater to sort of just slowly in the ways that feel comfortable to you start to become more comfortable with being more connected with this stuff. Like why is it that we can buy chicken breasts from the grocery store and play around with this meat and not feel any way about it. But if we, Buy chicken gizzards or chicken hearts, which look like little hearts. That's scary and weird and gross. You know, you're it's very arbitrary yeah. that like this part of the animal is acceptable and this other part isn't just because you're not used to mm-hmm. it. So when I was buying brains and tongues and hearts, I had some moments where I was like, I'm holding the brain in my hand right yeah. now. Like this is kind of freaking me out. And I I kept going. Anyway, I prepared this food. I honored it. I respected the animal that died for me to be nourished. And it was, you know, it took some time, it took some work, but then when I made something and it was good and people enjoyed it, I felt really good about myself. I felt really empowered. I felt really like, it was like, I just did something different. It was cool. So, you know, I want people to look at it like that.
0: Um, And, Exactly what you say. Like you're bursting through your social cultural programming that you kind of grew up with mm-hmm. in terms of these things, which is which is fascinating in and of itself. How? What's the best way to, um, I guess, source these? Because you know, similar given some of your background and what you mentioned about paleo, I imagine you can't just go out and get a corn fed, you know, corn fed cow liver. But what what do you recommend sourcing these things?
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends, of course, on where you live. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where like most of your, your listeners might, mostly, might be living. Mostly North America. Okay, I was going to say, because in Europe, you're actually probably, it's probably a lot it easier. It is a
0: heck of a lot easier. <laughs> meat.
1: Yeah, it's like kind of not even the conversation. It's just like, do you want meat? Here's, it's good quality, like go to town. Um, but in North America, there are still plenty of options. Um, some of the recommendations that I give is first and foremost, do some research locally and find a butcher shop, find a farmer's market. Um, and if you're fortunate enough, and, and most people do have within a reasonable distance, one or both of those resources available to them. And you can make friends with your farmer and make friends with your butcher and ask them questions and say, I'm interested in trying some, some new cuts like liver and heart and tongue. And can you get them? Where do they come from? How are they um, raised? How are they fed? Do you have any suggestions for how I can prepare these things? Um, m- more often than not, these people will be happy to help you and point you in the right direction because they're passionate about this stuff too Mm -hmm. and more often than not a lot of these places will already have it available like it's it's pretty amazing even in like mainstream grocery stores and stuff where people would assume this stuff doesn't exist it does it's kind of just like hiding on the fringes and you look right over it because you're not looking for it so any grocery store you you go to you can probably find Chicken hearts, chicken liver, chicken gizzards, maybe beef liver, um, bones, um, beef bones that you can make bone marrow and broth out of and things like that. These things are available. Um, So I would recommend doing that research first and making friends with your sort of local purveyors who are going to be more closely connected to where the animals are coming from. And then in North America, there are also a number of online resources right now that provide pretty high quality um, grass fed, um, well raised animal products that include um, nose to tail offerings. So I don't have any kind of direct affiliations with any of these companies, but I know like I used um, a company called U.S. Wellness Meats that offers a ton of nose to tail stuff. They've got great liverwurst, any organ probably you can find on their website. CrowdCow, Cow, um, Belcampo companies like that. Um, you can find online and you can get some stuff sent to you directly to your door that you don't really have to worry about going out and sourcing it and, uh, and try some things yourself. So, you know, sometimes it might take a little bit more work to source these things, but you know, if it's fun, it, it's worth the extra effort. And of course then there's like ethnic grocery stores, like you alluded yeah. to when you, um, lived in, it was Hong Kong, uh, London. Singapore,
0: but I spent a lot of time in Hong Singapore. Kong. Too.
1: Singapore. Yeah, I have never been, but I would love to go on a food tour uh of it's Singapore. But yeah, so I that. mean Yeah, when I was having trouble finding some kind of really hyper specific cuts, I went to my local Asian market, I went to my local Middle Eastern market, I went to my local African market and they're like, here you go. It's all here. So, um yeah, I mean it's fun. It's like a, again, it's a fun adventure. Go to a different grocery store and like find some things that you wouldn't find at yours, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Um any dangers in overdoing this?
1: Um, so again, this is something that, you know, you might want to speak to a, a doctor, kind of get your own sort of blood work sorted out before. Cause I can't tell you a hundred percent there's zero risk to anything that, you know, disclaimer, but the risks that people tend to associate with organ meats, I think are drastically overstated and generally speaking, not a risk for most people. So, um, there's sort of the, like, um, there's a iron overdose yeah. issue that people are kind of worried about. Generally, from what I've read, the research that I've read, most people who are having iron overdoses, which can be, can be problematic and serious, that tends to be from actual supplementation, not real food sources. Yeah. So I would think that unless you have a um, pre-existing issue, um, it would be very hard to overdose on iron from food sources. Um, things like just toxin overload that people are worried like, well, liver and kidney and their toxin stored storage organs. And they're, you know, I'm going to eat all the bad stuff that the animal ate. A couple responses to that. First, if you are sourcing the best possible um, meat that you can, there's really no reason to believe that that animal's organs are inherently any more um, problematic or filled with toxins than their muscle meat. So if you are again, doing the best you can to get organically raised um, healthy animals that are not being pumped full of uh, steroids or antibiotics, you're safe eating its its liver the same way you're safe eating its muscle meat. Mm-hmm. So there's that. There's also the idea that of course liver and kidney um, and organs like that are actual um, toxin filters, not, not sponges. So a liver doesn't store toxins. It filters yeah. it. So it methylates these toxins and helps excrete them through the body's processes. So these organs are not full of toxins, generally animals and people store their toxins in their fat. Mm-hmm. So if you're really worried about an animal's um, toxic load, you need to be eating leaner cuts and not eating like delicious fatty, I don't know, Ribeyes. Or whatever. Like yeah. That that's really, yeah, that's where you got to be worried, which sucks because they're delicious. Yeah. But again, if you're sourcing the best food you can, the best animals you can, again, that's not really a, a major issue. Um, so I would recommend anybody who, who has reason to believe that they're concerned about these things or has heavy metal concerns or, um, would be particularly prone to these things, whatever, or you're just changing your diet drastically to get some blood work done, get some basic comprehensive blood work done so that you can have this stuff checked. And do you have any issues that you need to be overly concerned about or deficiencies? But for the most part, I would say that more people are, anemic, are iron deficient, are deficient in these things that would benefit from eating more of this rather than the concern of, oh, if I suddenly eat liver every once in a while, am I going to overdose? I don't think that's a problem for most people.
0: Amazing. Ashley, this has been such an education. I want to transition now into a final sort of rapid fire questions, if you will.
1: Uh Um,
0: (laughs) What's your top trick for enhancing focus?
1: enhancing focus, holy, mo- um, coffee, <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh,
1: coffee and a good night's sleep, I would say. Um, throw your phone out the window. I don't have any better answers for you than that. <laughs>
0: uh, what is your, what is, what book has most significantly impacted your life and how you show up to it?
1: Looking at my bookshelf right now. Um, I've got a couple. Can you go back to that one?
0: Yeah, I can come back to it. <laughs> okay, okay, um, all right. And then sort what what excites you most about the health world at this moment?
1: Well, um this emerging conversation um, really excites me because this is what I'm most passionate about. And I think that if we, I'm hopeful that we can find the balance between information overload and being jaded about um, the information that's being put out there because we tend to sort of disbelieve or be very cynical about people's motives on the internet. Mm -hmm. And that can be a problem. But I think that again, with this, this current in- environment and climate and our ability to have connections like this across the world and put information out that we feel strongly about. I think that, you know, if we can look at it again with sort of um, a positive approach and an open mind and a critical mind, um, we are absolutely in a place where we have all the information to um, feel better at our fingertips. And I think that's really important.
0: Well said. All right. Coming back because before I asked you where to find okay, you, book. favorite book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So many. I mean, I suppose. Listen, if we're talking about the the subject that we've been talking about, this book I've got on my shelf called "Sacred Cow" by Diana Rogers mm-hmm. and Rob Wolf. If you read that, I one? haven't
0: read it, but I, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. yeah.
1: It, it's a fantastic book. It's just, again, it's a very, very thoughtful, um, well-researched book talking about the current state of our food industry and um, the approach to ethical meat eating and how to do that and how we can how we can move forward to make the world a healthier, happier, perhaps less judgmental um, place around the way we eat. I think that's very important. So highly recommend people who want to learn more about that stuff. Uh, check out that book.
0: Amazing. Ashley, where can people find out more about you in the book?
1: So you can, I'm I'm most active on Instagram. So if you want to reach out to me, um, there at the muscle maven, that's my handle. And I will talk to you. You want to ask me anything about organ meats? I will answer you because I'm that into it. I nerd out on it that much. I will answer any questions you have. Uh, you can check out my website. It's just my name, ashleyvanhouten.com. And, uh, I've got a podcast called muscle maven radio. Um, and then the book is available wherever you want to buy books. It's called It Takes Guts. And uh, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy.
0: Amazing. And I highly recommend the book because that, well, I've been looking for organ meat recipes since my grandmother ruined cow liver for me. So thank you for fixing my perception of it. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to not only educate us on this, but to really just publish a book that is so important. So thank you, Ashley.
1: Thank you, Boomer. I appreciate
0: it. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Fascinating conversation, and I just enjoy talking with somebody who is so open and so willing to talk about uh, even the dark sides of the bodybuilding industry. But Ashley was very open and not dogmatic in her approach at all. There was complete open and honesty about the benefits of organ meats, the limitations of organ meats, and why somebody may not want to go carnivore for a very prolonged period of time. There are also the benefits of going carnivore for certain people, as we discussed. The show notes again for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash guts. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows and leave a five-star review because all of these reviews help so much. And I promise that if you leave a review, at some point, I'll likely read it on the show. Have an absolutely amazing, epic day. And remember, choose health.